This is David Mashi, Senior Managing Editor of Discourse, an online journal of economics, politics, and culture published by the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Welcome to the Discourse Magazine Podcast. On today's episode, Alden Abbott, Senior Research Fellow here at Mercatus, leads a discussion on the globalization of antitrust enforcement. In recent decades, antitrust laws, which deal with unfair competition, cartels, monopolies, and so forth, have been adopted by most countries around the world. While at one time, antitrust enforcers paid little attention to what their foreign counterparts were doing, things have changed dramatically. For example, alleged abuses by Google, Facebook, and Amazon, and big proposed mergers of all kinds, are now being investigated by many countries, not just the United States. Joining Alden for a discussion about all of this are William Kavasik, Professor of Law and Policy at George Washington University Law School, and James Rill, one of America's foremost antitrust lawyers. The audio, as well as the transcript of this conversation, has been slightly edited for clarity. I'm delighted to welcome this audience to our podcast on the globalization of antitrust. Antitrust is a very hot topic here and around the world. So joining me here today are the two individuals who have done the most to spread the gospel of antitrust to the four corners of the world, the Honorable James Rill and Professor William Kavasik. I've known these two distinguished scholar practitioners for many, many years, and uh, they will discuss the significance of the globalization of antitrust for the United States and for the world drawing upon their personal histories. Professor William Kavasik is Global Competition Professor of Law and Policy at George Washington University Law School, Director of the School's Competition Law Center. He's a former professor at George Mason University Law School and former Commissioner of the Federal Trade Commission during the George W. Bush administration. Since August 2013, he has served as a non-executive director with the United Kingdom's Competition and Markets Authority. And he has been very heavily involved in the International Competition Network. We'll discuss that in greater detail later for many, many years. James Rill is one of America's foremost antitrust lawyers. A noted private practitioner throughout most of his career, Mr. Rill is also a distinguished public servant. He served as Assistant Attorney General for Antitrust during the George Herbert Walker Bush administration, and prior to that was Chairman of the ABA's Antitrust Section. As Assistant Attorney General, he negotiated the U.S.-European Union Antitrust Cooperation Agreement of 1991 and issued a first joint Federal Trade Commission and Justice Department horizontal merger guidelines in 1992. In 1997, Mr. Rill was appointed to serve as co-chair on U.S. Department of Justice's International Competition Policy Advisory Committee, and through that, he played a leading role in the formation of the International Competition Network, which comprises almost all of the nation's competition agencies. Now, I will discuss the development of global antitrust through a, little, through a number of guided questions, and we're looking forward to an entertaining dialogue. These, both these gentlemen are loquacious and have very strong ideas. So, uh, gentlemen, uh, you've worked in the antitrust field for decades, and when you started your careers, a focus of an American antitrust lawyers was almost entirely domestic. So what made you interested in international antitrust 
And how did you start getting involved in international issues? I think I'll start with Mr. Rill, whose career as an antitrust lawyer goes back to the 1950s. Well, thank you very much, Alden. It's an honor to be on the program with you and uh, particularly Bill, longtime friend and colleague whom I admire greatly and uh, who's really made the most important mark in antitrust uh, of any of us in the international field. You know, my dear friend Tom Leary, uh, who many years practiced uh, antitrust law, wrote a book called The Accidental Lawyer. And I think that uh, my first involvement in international antitrust, I would describe it as, a, as reflecting the accidental antitrust international uh, lawyer. Before I was appointed assistant attorney general, I had uh, only minimal experience in international antitrust and was doing mostly domestic uh, mergers and conduct cases. But like two weeks after I joined the antitrust division, I got a call from the AG, Dick Thornburg at the time, and he said, uh, Jim, you're going to Japan. And I said, General, you're tired of me already? And uh, he said, no. I got a call from uh, from Carla Hills, who was then the U.S. Trade Representative, an old friend. And the, the Justice Department, the United States and Japan had entered into what were called the Structural Impediments Initiative discussions. And uh, that, that was an attempt by the U.S. and the Japanese to avoid a, a really a trade war that would have been occasioned by U.S. implementation of the 301 section of the Trade Act, sanctions against Japan. We have these discussions to see if they can be solved by negotiation. There were six, uh, I'll get into more detail later, I believe, but there were, there were six uh, co-chairs of the U.S. side, Commerce, State, Treasury, USTR and Council of Economic Advisors. The Japanese counterparts were, were there also. So in early September of 1989, I headed off to Tokyo to get involved in the uh, structural impediment initiative talks in an attempt to provide to and encourage the Japanese Fair Trade Commission to enforce the boycotts, if you will, or refusals to deal with the U.S. Uh, US exports uh, in the very highly concentrated, both vertically and horizontally, Japanese market. During my time in office, I made five or six trips to Japan or within context of the discussion of these talks, which I think uh, produced a good result. But that really started me off on the, on the trail of, uh, of antitrust in the international field. And followed up, I could talk a little bit more about uh, discussions with uh, then Sir Leon Britton, who was the Commissioner for Competition of the EU, former cabinet member in the uh, in the Thatcher cabinet in the UK, leading up to the uh, cooperation agreement of 1991. But I don't want to monopolize the whole story. But that's really how I got started in my uh, continuing interest in the field of the international antitrust. Third development during that period, of course, was the fall of the Berlin Wall and the opening up of the uh, and, and that entry into market of the former satellite states of the Soviet Union. And uh, we had several discussions there and uh, meetings uh, in those uh, in some of those countries back in the, in early 1990. But uh, I can get into more detail on that if you'd like as well. But uh, all of a sudden, I found myself in Japan and Eastern Central Europe of that uh, repast rather. Uh, I never lost it. So that's that's where I got started. All of well, thank you. That so you got started at a very high level and working with Japan and Europe, which were the two central jurisdictions beginning to work on competition law. 
Professor Kavasik, tell us something about your interest and in early involvement in international antitrust. Alden, I'm uh, enormously grateful to you for the opportunity to participate in this conversation. And it's a tremendous honor to do this, uh, not just with you, but with Jim. In so many ways, uh, Jim set the foundation for the modern framework of international competition policy as we know it today. Uh, And if you were to look at the faceplate that would go on a a major structure, the bridge, uh, you'll see, you would see Jim's name on that bridge because in so many ways he helped build that framework. And all of us who've walked across that bridge uh, owe a debt to Jim. So it's a delight to be here. My beginning in this area goes back to 1975, 1976, uh, only a few years ago, 45 years ago, when I had the opportunity as a law student to have a leave of absence to work on the majority staff of the Senate Antitrust and Monopoly Subcommittee of the Senate Judiciary Committee. I was a research assistant uh, on that staff. The committee was headed by Phil Hart. And my principal assignment during the year I was there to work was to work on a measure that uh, soon became adopted as the Hart-Scott-Rodino Antitrust Improvements Act of 1976. My focal point was the then proposed mechanism for subjecting certain mergers to a mandatory notification requirement and a suspensory period to permit the government agencies to gather information and, and review transactions before they were consummated and, if necessary, to intervene to block or modify uh, transactions. A keen area of interest for the committee was the larger global experience. In 1975-76, there were perhaps 20 jurisdictions that had had established competition laws in some form. That number today is over 130. Uh, Things have changed quite a bit. But a number of jurisdictions had experimented in a very tentative way with notification mechanisms, nothing that quite resembled what Hart Scott ultimately adopted. But it was a wonderful opportunity for me to do a global survey of which jurisdictions had competition laws. Senator Hart had devoted a considerable amount of his time as chair of the antitrust subcommittee to holding hearings on the then emerging topic of international competition law. As a result, I got to spend hours looking at the green-backed volumes of the committee's proceedings going back even before Senator Hart's uh, tenure as chair of the committee to when Estes Kefauver chaired the antitrust subcommittee, taking a tour through the larger evolution of what we now call international competition law, uh, because it was clear in the development of the merger control regime that at some point, at some time, This would not simply be an American preoccupation, even a quirky American concern. This would ultimately command the attention of a larger number of jurisdictions, though nobody knew at the time that it would expand in such dramatic ways for the reasons that Jim was describing just a moment ago. Uh, And uh, from that exposure in 1975-76, I was hooked. And I I knew that uh, I would love to have a career that had international competition law as a major dimension. Getting to major jurisdictions involved in antitrust. Now, Japan developed a competition law during the post-war occupation when Douglas MacArthur, in fact, pushed for development of a fair trade commission in Japan and antitrust laws generally. But antitrust law was not very important 
in Japan. And even as late as uh, the late 1980s, early 90s, it wasn't too important. Mr. Rill, can you tell us how antitrust came to be important in Japan and why it wasn't terribly important at first? Let me start out with the uh, with the first part of it, why it was not particularly important at first. Uh, one would have to read, uh, I think it was, it was reported in a book by uh, by Prestowitz, that the first very important prime minister of Japan post-war, Yoshida, really responsible for the formation of the uh, Liberal Democratic Party, wrote in his memoir that the worst position of the Allied Control Commission was the imposition of the antitrust laws on Japan, which terribly distorted Japanese growth and uh, economic uh, economic success. That view was embodied, uh, I think, very much in the uh, in the approach of uh, the Japanese uh, commerce agency, MITI. And MITI had much more power than the JFTC. Along uh, at some point, I would say in the uh, 50s or 60s, the JFTC attempted to show its strength by moving against uh, cartels in the petroleum marketing business. And MITI put the clamps down on it. And uh, the JFTC, from that point forward, really had no no authority within the Japanese government to speak of. Uh, the Midi command control industrial policy approach of the, the precedents in Japan over any kind of uh, what we would consider to be competition policy in the JFTC was actually shared in many times, you know, in seriatim by men who were sent, uh, and I mean men, who were sent over from the uh, finance ministry. Uh, who had uh, very little either love or knowledge of, uh, of uh, competition policy and thought of whatever consumer welfare was, strange American uh, American notion. The evolution of the JFTC into a strong, uh, a strong part of the Japanese government really, I think, coincided with, and I don't think we can claim credit for it, but I think the, the economics of Japan claims some credit for it. They recognized that Internal competition, which was fairly vibrant, uh, could uh, could well be stimulated as well by an overall competition framework that would uh, not retard, but would considerably uh, enhance the growth of the market economy of Japan. And I think that was stimulated to some extent. Well, many of the Japanese government would agree that it was stimulated to some extent by the Structural Impediment Initiative talks, in which the U.S. Uh, delegation. Uh, DOJ is a key central part of that delegation, pressing Japan to enforce the antitrust laws to open up the markets, to get rid of the or then Kairetsu uh, restraints on market, Kairetsu being a kind of a post-war inheritor of the pre-war Zaibatsu uh, arrangements. And we weren't entirely successful. I think that uh, the, the first stimulation of auto exports uh, did not go very far, but the fact that it did bring to light uh, the importance of the Japanese Fair Trade Commission. And I think uh, as that evolved, the recognition of, uh, of a competition regime became much more, uh, much more embedded in the, uh, in the Japanese public policy uh, principles. I, I would have to tell you, that I'm, I'm sort of embarrassed to tell you, but former Commissioner Matano of the JFTC once told me, he said, we really want to put a bust of you in the, uh, in the halls of the JFTC because you gave us credibility with the uh, SII talks to, to have an important part of the, uh, of the Japanese government. And I think that uh, now we see that uh, Japan, I mean, nobody's perfect, but I think Japan now occupies a very important role in international antitrust. And uh, I think uh, as, a, as a responsibility and as exercise the responsibility to uh, attempt to 
Great. A, a solid antitrust program uh, among its uh, neighboring states, as well as uh, through the uh, international organizations such as the ICN and the OECD, of which Japan is, a, is a, I think, a very important and, and very outspoken member. So we'll take a little bit of credit for the SII talks, but I think it was the evolution of Japanese thinking as the bubble began to burst and the, and the importance of competition to the operation of the successful market that became more embedded in Japan and the role of media, which is now a different organization, uh, became less, uh, less dominant over the work of the JFTC. Great. So competition law became important in Japan. Why did it become important in Europe, Professor Kavasek? I know it was included in, in uh, the Treaty of Rome, the so-called European Constitution, 1957, there was a long cartel tradition, I believe, in Europe. Why, why did Europe, why was Europe interested in competition? I think there was a strong sense that came out of the experience of the 1930s and the 1940s that in Germany, uh, the cartelization of German industry in basic sectors such as chemicals had played an important role in supporting the ascent of national socialism and had helped propel Germany towards the mobilization that underpinned uh, the aggressive program of, of, of aggression that took place uh, throughout in the beginning in, the, in, in 1939 onward. Uh, and there was a strong sense in Germany that uh, you had the coal, coalescence of, of great economic power and political power with disastrous consequences. Uh, certainly the development in the 1950s of Germany's competition law system, which in many ways is a crucial antecedent of the Treaty of Rome and the competition articles that uh, that are adopted in the mid-50s, uh, reflected a strong sense that uh, the decentralization of economic power and the prohibition on cartels in particular had a crucial role to play, not simply in economic growth and development, but in the preservation of democratic institutions themselves. It's a, it's a relatively slow process of development. Uh, I should mention an earlier crucial step is the Coal and Steel Treaty adopted in the early 1950s. Uh, that is a, a foundation for the, for the Treaty of Rome itself. The Coal and Steel Treaty uh, has bu built into it an, an important competition provision. Uh, so I think there is a sense uh, in Europe in crucial ways that limiting the cartelization of entire sections and the and se sectors and the control of economic activity is a vital step towards the establishment of liberal political institutions as well. It is a slow growth and development of the, the broader European regime from the 1950s up through the 1960s and 70s. You might argue that uh, the full blooming of the European system doesn't take place until 1989 with the adoption of the merger regulation, which in some respects puts Europe uh, on the global map in a way that had not taken place before that. But we see, uh, we see a, a collection of important economic and political impulses that lead to the integration of competition law in a deeper and deeper way into the fabric of European regulation uh, and ultimately into the, into the legal regimes of the member states uh, themselves. But I, it is fascinating to see how this uh, formative period, I would say, of the 1930s, 1940s, leads to the integration of competition law into 
the laws of what become the member states, the coal and steel treaty, the German first German anti-monopoly law, then the Treaty of Rome competition articles. Competition law, competition policy comes to be seen as a, as a vital ingredient of not just economic development, but uh, political liberalization as well. And the fuller integration of the member states uh, into a single political unit uh, as well, and and the remarkable the remarkable development that is Europe itself, partly competition law, partly notions drawn from the Commerce Clause, the role that fuller integration of economies can play in supporting prosperity, but also political integration that discourages. Uh, a repetition of the two horrific experiences that Europe had had uh, in the first half of the 20th century. You mentioned 1989. I think 1989 to 1991 period is a sort of a key turning point, isn't it? Because you had to follow the Berlin Wall, collapse of the Soviet Union, and suddenly uh, the United States starts promoting the adoption of competition regimes in the former Soviet Union and former communist countries, also in developing countries. And both of you had a real involvement in that. I know Professor Kovacic through his work in developing countries and Assistant Attorney General Rail as part of the Bush administration later on as part of this effort to promote an international grouping of antitrust of competition agencies. Can you tell us a little bit about about your efforts, perhaps Professor Kovacic and then Mr. Rill? Uh, the, the process that Jim described, uh, both the uh, structural impediments initiative uh, in Japan, but the, the dramatic effect that the uh, fall of the Ber- Berlin Wall had and the collapse of the Soviet Union had in, in creating uh, opportunities for the development of, of new economic systems and new political systems that went with them. If we come into 8990, there are by this time about 30 jurisdictions that have a competition law in some form. Over the past 30 plus years, that number has grown to over 130. 100 new systems in barely 30 years. A a crucial part of that process starts in the period you describe, where countries are re-examining the foundations for their economies, uh, switching from economies that relied crucially on central economic planning deep government involvement in all aspects of the economy toward a more market-oriented regime. There was a belief as part of this process, a belief nurtured in part by the United States, by the European Union, that a process that simply privatized monopolies, that put state monopolies into private hands, a system that created a more liberal economic order without providing some assurance that that system would act in the best interest of citizens and generate economic results that would be seen in a visible way as a positive benefit of economic liberalization and would support political liberalization meant that you needed regulatory institutions, competition policy institutions that would ensure that the private economic order would have strong incentives to operate in the broader public interest and would do so. And this meant that in country after country, some ingredient of competition law and policy became part of the package of suggested reforms. There was a parallel awareness uh, that part of the effort that 
a system of competition law doesn't simply isn't simply suspended in the air. That the competition law system depends vitally on a, a whole host of supporting institutions, public administration, private law, definitions of property rights, contract rights, professional societies, academic bodies whose work are vital to the support and operation of a competition law system, courts that are seen as respected uh, and honest uh, adjudicators of disputes. There was not only the awareness that some measure of legal framework that would support competition was important, but that there was the vastly important step of building the foundations for effective legal regimes as well. I think we greatly underestimated how important and how difficult that was going to be. And that remains a a crucial task in country after country now. But that's the setting in which the broader global discovery of competition law as an ingredient of economic liberalization takes hold. Mr. Rail, after leaving office in the early 90s, You kept up your involvement through your leadership in this International Competition Policy Advisory Committee and worked in a bipartisan fashion really in that area, and which led to the development of the so-called International Competition Network, which now has over 130 members. And that network was formally set up in 2001 at the beginning of a George W. Bush administration. Can you tell us something about your role in all of that? And, and your thoughts on, on the launch of the ICN and perhaps where the ICN is going? Uh, has it been successful? And I'll ask Professor Kavasik to put in his two cents as well. Well, we certainly were worth a lot more than two cents. But what happened in, uh, in uh, 1977, Attorney General Reno and Assistant Attorney General Joel Klein appointed me as co-chair of what was uh, the International Competition Policy Advisory Committee. The Justice Department, recognizing the growth of uh, competition policy that Bill has described, and in, in particularly in Europe, to try and advise the Department of Justice what appropriate measures it might take to confront, cooperate with, enhance the development of positive competition principles uh, throughout the world. The Competition Policy Advisory Committee, uh, acronym ICEPAC, was really a non-governmental body that was formed an advisory committee to the to the Department of Justice. No government uh, employees were on the committee, although we obviously had consultants and, and uh, those who were, who were assigned to us from the uh, Justice Department to put together a program for advice to the department as to the policies that you follow on international uh, international cooperation and harmonization, or rather convergence of antitrust principles. Our report was filed in, uh, in the year uh, 2000. Basically, the, we had hearings and, and most of the leading enforcers around the world had uh, testified before us. One of the recommendations, we, we covered a merger policy, cartel policy, you know, organizational issues. One of, the, uh, one of the recommendations was the formation of a more or less informal or formal entity, uh, which we call the Global Competition Forum in the, uh, in the ICEPAC report, which would consist of uh, basically antitrust enforcers who chose to join. The only qualification for being a member of, the, uh, of this Global Competition Forum was that the country had to have an antitrust law and an antitrust agency. 
the uh, notion was that it would be an opportunity for antitrust uh, enforcers to get together and discuss all antitrust all the time and not be necessarily uh, subject to influence by, directly influenced by, taken over by other organizations of the various governments, including, for example, in the U.S. USTR, um, to come up with uh, recommendations for the global harmonization of antitrust policy. That was the uh, that was the that was the beginning, and much much of the credit for this uh, this this notion, this idea, this this thought came from uh, Professor Merit Geno of uh, Columbia University, who was the executive director of the ICEPAC, and much of the work of the ICEPAC uh, is attributable to her foresight and and hard work. She deserves a lion's share of the credit for what ICEPAC produced. After the uh, after the filing of the report, there was a little bit of a hiatus, and there was not much of a you know, no, no immediate move towards the formation of this uh, all antitrust all the time informal organization. And so, uh, uh, Merritt and I visited with uh, with Assistant Attorney General Klein, who had very little time left in the office at that stage. We're talking in the year two thousand. We persuaded him that that would be a good part of the legacy would be to have a strong endorsement of that policy. So of, of that organization. So um, and of course Joel uh, agreed. And uh, on the occasion of the anniversary, the tenth anniversary, a little bit later than the tenth anniversary, actually of the European merger regulation that Bill referred to a while back, Joel announced uh, the U.S. strong support for the formation of the global uh, antitrust uh, informal organization, as recommended uh, in the uh, in the ICEPAC report. Uh, as I understand it, uh, that came as a little bit of a surprise to uh, the competition commissioner of the EU at the time was Mario Monti from Italy. Uh, but he thought it was a good idea. And the next day, his uh, his remarks at the anniversary of the uh, Mary Virtue regulation uh, endorsed Joel's comments and said we should get it moving. Well, and again, a little bit of hiatus occurred until uh, there was a meeting in uh, early 2001 at Ditchley Park. Major antitrust enforcers attended that meeting with the express purpose of seeing what impulse, what motivation, what what generation can be given to the, the creation of this organization. It came, the meeting that came out of Pitchley Park is organized by a fellow Bill Rowley, prominent antitrust lawyer. It motiv- the, the impulse came out of Pitchley Park, and then it was picked up by Bill Kovacic and Tim Muras, who were then the, the, the running the Federal Trade Commission in 2001 as the new administration took over. And they had a very, very important, motivating, impulsive role for the creation of this uh, of the of the organization. So, in September of 2001, coincident with the Fordham program that year, the formation of what was called the International Competition Network took place. My recollection is it was uh, 12 signatories, nations, antitrust agencies, joined on to the creation of the International Competition Network. As Bill has indicated, that uh, now not only 130 antitrust uh, jurisdictions plus around the world, but 130 members of the International Competition Network. And another important uh, important aspect of the ICN, and it was as recommended in the ICEPAC report, that, that there be non-governmental advisors to the work of this sort of international international discussion organization, if you will. And so now it is, it is people by not only the 130 members, but a large number of non-governmental advisors who are designed to, uh, to, to make a contribution and recommendation and, and, and really elbow grease as well to the work of the ICN. Now, how important is the ICN? In my view, it's very important. I think many of the work, uh, much of the work done by the ICN has enhanced sensible, 
antitrust policy around the world. Uh, merger pre-notification recommendations, recommendations on predatory pricing, through recommendations on unilateral conduct, now recommendations, and, and I think mostly very importantly, recommendations on fair procedure, sensible procedure, still work in progress. And now recently, the ICN has adopted a, a proposal initially uh, voiced by the Assistant Attorney General at the time, Macon Delrahim, to create some level of accountability, an organization to create some level of accountability or whether or not fair procedures were being adopted and followed. And that now is uh, embraced uh, in the ICN, taken over by the ICN, in the uh, competition uh, antitrust uh, program called CAP. CAP is uh, sort of a beginning to, to function, and it's very important to see how CAP works, to see if there is some level of accountability that can be produced by this organization. That, I think, it could be a very major contribution of the ICN to this point. So that's where it stands. Professor Kavasik, what's your evaluation of, of, of the ICN, how effective it, it is? Uh, a couple of thoughts to add to, uh, to Jim's wonderful panorama of the, the creation of the institution. One thing I'd, I'd note as a starting point in thinking about Jim's comments is that the development and creation of the ICN reflects something very good, a good habit in our system of public administration that I'm afraid has faded a great deal. And that is, it could not have happened had there not been a sustained commitment over time, even across regime changes to make the entire framework develop. It develops in the 1990s during Bill Clinton's presidency The Justice Department appoints a former head of the antitrust division from a Republican era, that's Jim, to be the co-chair of that effort. And then the question comes in late 2000, where's it going to go now? You may recall that the regime change in 2000, 2001 was acrimonious, filled with bitterness. And there is a tendency in our system of public administration that when you have a regime change for new management to come in and say, everything that was there before was rubbish, and I'm here to fix it. And I would say that is, in many respects, a tone and an approach that has characterized our regime changes, certainly since 2000 as well. But what happens in 2001 is something different. That is, in the antitrust agencies, it's at the FTC with Tim Muras, it's at the Department of Justice with Charles James, there is a view that this initiative created during the predecessor administration is worth carrying forward. Uh, And Tim Muras and Charles immediately decided we're going to place the full weight of our tenure to making this work. And there was nothing that guaranteed that it was going to work. And indeed, for all of the effort that had gone on to creating awareness that a new forum would be valuable, the specific ingredients, work plan, methodology of that new forum had not been fully specified. That was all work that had to be done. But here you had a new administration, different party, saying that this effort established before is worth carrying on And we're not going to disparage it because it was not created during our tenure. We're going to embrace it and carry it forward. Uh, And I would say that if we think about what 
how do good programs develop over time? It is exactly that kind of attitude that treats good policy as a relay race and not an individual event. I agree with Jim that there's been a lot of progress. You know, we're 20 years out now, coming out almost 20 years out uh, this coming fall uh, from the creation. Uh, What things have happened? One good thing that happened is that it put a real charge into the existing international networks that Jim was referring to. The United Nations Commission on Trade and Development, the Competition Committee of the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, to mention too. Competition in the entry of this new institution made those institutions much better. It focused their work in a much more practical way. It turned projects that had been five or 10 years into duration into one to two year turnarounds. It inspired a much greater degree of inclusiveness. The OECD shifts to a model that includes a global competition forum that unmistakably reflected part of the influence of the nurturing and germination of the international competition network itself. So it made those networks much better than they had been before. It inspired the creation and has inspired the creation of regional replicas of the ICN. A problem for the ICN and a number of other of the large international networks is that within the umbrella of so many institutions, you have diverse interests. The interests, capabilities, and position of many competition authorities created in the last 20 years especially in emerging market environments, uh, are much different in many ways than those of the oldest of the institutions. So we now see a recognition that joining up those newer authorities on a geographic basis, for example, enables them to address common needs and common conditions much better than they would otherwise. So we've had the development in many ways in Africa, in Latin America, in Asia, to take three regions of regional groups inspired by the opt-in, standard-setting, inclusive model established by ICN being created. I don't think that would have happened in the same way that it did without ICN. I'll just mention one other element that ICN has brought to the picture, and that's a much greater emphasis on policy implementation. Now, good systems have two major ingredients. One are broader conceptual ideas about, well, what's an abuse of dominance? What's a substantial lessening in competition? But a second ingredient is how do you actually do this? How do you cross the gap between the policy aspiration and its realization in practice? And a big part of the work program, a growing part of the work program at the ICN became policy implementation. And what's come out of the working groups and out of the work of the other international organizations is an outpouring of highly practical advice, guidance, and know-how about how to actually do it. How do you do an investigation in a merger? How do you investigate a cartel? How do you run a leniency program? And very important, bringing together agency leadership and asking in small groups often, in workshops, How do you actually do the job to turn to the head of an agency and say, what do you know today that you'd wish you'd known on day one? 
And how do we make that know-how accessible to your successors so that they travel down the learning curve much faster? So I would say for all the challenges that lay ahead, and they are formidable for this network and any other, policy implementation has arisen on the agenda to assume, I would say, equal significance along with the analytical and conceptual framework. And otherwise, in other words, we're not just talking anymore about the physics of competition law. We're talking about the engineering that enables you to make sure that the broad insights are put to work in a highly practical way. ICN did this as well. And I simply end this comment by saying, where did it all begin? It began in so many ways with the work that Jim, Merritt Jano, a wonderful support staff did in the late 1990s in ICEPAC to put together the vision for a new institution. And I would say in each succeeding administration, the DOJ and the FTC have stood side by side saying, this is worth having, this should endure, and this will not be affected by the winds of change that can come running through Washington when you have a change of party in the White House. Thank you so much for that analysis, Bill. I think we'll talk a little bit about winds of change in antitrust. Before that, I'd like to mention one country, most populous country in the world, China, and that is the one significant country that's not an ICN member, although it has an antitrust law, which is over 10 years old now. Is that a problem? And what about the claim by some that, not just in China, but additional jurisdictions as well, competition law or antitrust law has become a bit politicized? Thoughts on that? It's a most unfortunate omission. I think ultimately the ICN cannot fulfill its promise if what is arguably one of the three most important competition systems on the planet is not a participant. The duopoly that the European Union and the United States enjoyed certainly for a good part of the previous century is now a tight oligopoly that has China as a significant member. I mean, you, there's no formal rating system that tells you who's, who's the most powerful, the most significant, but I'd suggest to you that business decision makers and their advisors in planning transactions on their short list of jurisdictions we have to think about, always have China on the list now. And you can make a good argument that China is no less important in crucial respects today than the United States and the European Union. They're right there. So if one of your top three is not in the membership, and one of your top three has the ability by its own decisions to influence international standards, to determine how commerce unfolds, um, that's, a, that's, a, that's a, a dreadful gap in the membership. I think at some point China will decide to join. The deliberations of the Chinese government will probably take into account all sorts of considerations. My impression in watching the work of the ICN and its steering committee is that the moment, the minute that China said, we want to join, they would be welcomed enthusiastically. They'd be given a seat on the steering committee, which is the governance board for the ICN. They would immediately find themselves featured 
on panels in internal deliberations. Uh, that is, that welcoming acceptance would take place take place right away. But given the significance of China as an economy, as a nation, and certainly as a competition regime, until they are part of the institution and the organization, you can't say that the framework is complete. No, I agree completely with what uh, with what Bill says. But as Bill was talking, uh, talking about uh, the leadership role of the the, the three, the, the triad of, of uh, intellectual and policy leadership, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but with time being what it is, I wonder whether the leadership role of the United States is going to be, with the current debate going on in the United States, as to whether the basic foundations of our antitrust policy and the consumer welfare standard are uh, subject to serious question. and. Uh, how is that going to be playing uh, playing in, in the continuation of the U.S. Uh, recognition as being uh, the, if not if not the, one of the uh, three principal? An excellent point, Mr. Rell. So just for the audience, I think in recent decades, there have been sort of a general consensus that antitrust laws or competition laws, as they're called in most of the world, should be applied in a manner that benefits consumers. And now, in the last few years, there have been some critics in the United States who have said that this consumer welfare standard isn't working, that there needs to be a much competition isn't that strong in the U.S. You need to have a much tougher stance. Big may be bad. You may want to be more aggressive in breaking up companies or attacking possible mergers. In now in, in Europe and other parts of the world, you're getting proposals to regulate the big digital platforms such as uh, Amazon, Google, Facebook, and there's some proposals of that sort in the U.S. as well. So there's some possible major changes in the way major jurisdictions are looking at antitrust, and this may be upsetting the sort of generalized view that was expressed and part of the ICN training too. Uh, Professor Kabasik, do you have any thoughts? No, we're we're in a we're in a tumultuous period now. And and you could make an argument that the influence of the United States has diminished significantly over the last 20 or so years. When go back to Jim's tenure at the antitrust division, 1989 up to 1993. There would be no question at that time if you ask what jurisdiction is preeminent in its influence globally. Uh, that unmistakably is the United States. Uh, there's no question about that. If you ask the same question today, which jurisdiction is most influential? I think that's the European Union. In a very rough sense, the capital of competition law and policy in the world today has been Brussels. That influence is second to none, I think, in the world. It's a contestable position because of developments not just in China, but in India, in Brazil, and a host of other countries that are doing important work. And you know, we shouldn't weep or be concerned that the influence is, is, is diminished. That's a competition worth having. And in our own country, the notion that there would be a robust debate periodically over what we do and why we're doing it is also healthy. And as, as Tim Muris used to say, if we ever get to the point where we're not willing to subject our ideas to a vigorous debate, maybe it's time to get some new ideas. The, the turmoil that comes from that is, is, is not something to be feared or regretted. There are concerns, and I'll just mention a couple. One is that a tone of the modern debate, in many ways, is that Increasingly, you see public officials and commentators say that everything the U.S. has done 
over the past 40 years. And what they really mean to do is to go back to roughly 1980, before Ronald Reagan comes to Washington, has been a mistake that there were a couple of lucid intervals, like the filing of the Microsoft case by the Department of Justice in the last 90s. But but the baseline is, is one of near irrationality and incompetence. Or to use a phrase, a word that is popular in discussions today, decision-making that is corrupt. So not only is the system as a whole a wasteland, but the people inside the system have been fatally flawed, if not morally derelict in some ways. The tone of the debate is so harsh. One concern I have is that it means that, and, and do I have, a, do I have a, a horse in this race? Am I, am I fond of looking at my own time at public service as being a wasteland? or being individually derelict, that's not my predisposition. But I think a neutral observer would say, if you look carefully at things that done over this period, there are lots of things to like. One consequence of the modern critique is we're telling the rest of the world, there's nothing to look at there. It's all bad. And the second thing is that none of the analytical concepts that we've relied upon including perhaps a definition of the consumer interest that includes innovation, dynamism, price quality, that that, that interest in the well-being of the consumer defined more broadly this way was completely mistaken and that we should cast it aside for a much more elaborate goal structure that looks at a, a broad constellation of other, other considerations. We may be on the verge of telling the world that we think that this orientation itself was deeply mistaken. And if I'm a foreign observer, I'm a bit concerned looking at a system that says, for the last 40 years, we have been deranged. We've been crazy. Uh, indeed, in some ways, morally derelict. But it's better now. It's all right now. We see the world clearly. Why should I ever trust this system that is so prone to this kind of lapse? and just seems to have woken up. To the extent that we have useful things to say to the world about how to do this, why to do it, uh, how to carry it out, I'm not sure that we will be in a position, if this critique is taken on abroad, to have a positive role to play. Those are sobering thoughts. So we've seen the development of antitrust laws, so-called competition laws around the world, efforts at international cooperation, I think there's also, it was already discussed through the ICN and other institutions. Also, I'll add through the United States agencies cooperate on particular cases, particular matters with major foreign counterparts on a very on a regular basis. But we also see some major changes afoot that could derail things and, and the future of competition law, its standards, how it's applied, the role of the United States and other jurisdictions is a bit up in the air. But do you have any closing comments, anything perhaps more optimistic, <laughs> Professor Kavasik, for our audience? I think the process of cross-border cooperation has been a success story. If we go back to the period that Jim introduced early on, if we go back to the period in the 1980s, uh, Europe develops its own merger control regime. We see the emergence of so many more uh, systems around the world. I think competition authorities around the world have realized that their interdependence is significant and that the sensibility of what they do depends a lot on achieving 
a deeper understanding of counterpart regimes, uh, greater standardization based around principles that are universally regarded as a matter of process or substance as being sound, sensible, state-of-the-art, and to have a common commitment to enhancing those other times through a process of experimentation, evaluation, and opting in. Uh, uh, the awareness of the importance of that interaction and the knowledge that sharing experience enables individual jurisdictions to move down the learning curve much faster than they would otherwise, that especially with the welter of matters running internationally now involving tech giants and others, that, that there ought to be a conversation among the major actors about what are we doing and how are we going about that. I think that has propelled us in the direction of deeper cooperation. It could be better. There could be greater efforts, for example, to use mechanisms since, such as staff exchanges or secondments where major agencies place their personnel inside the other institution to work side by side by counterparts. There could be greater efforts at common research projects, studying modern phenomena. There could be greater efforts to pool, uh, to pool resources to build capability and knowledge in disciplines crucial to the implementation of policy over time. And there is the very worthwhile, expanded, dedicated effort to ask if we're going to have an expansion of the range of factors that will be taken into account, how will that be done? What kind of norms will guide the application of authority? And how will we explain in a clear way to the outside world precisely what we're trying to do? So I think the I think the 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 story of cooperation has been successful. It's been built upon decades of effort now, and it can be better. And I think perhaps a byproduct of the COVID experience is that it forced agencies to recognize that looking to their counterparts for better practices, for better techniques, out of desperate necessity made a lot of sense. And I think out of those relationships uh, has come an awareness that there are underexploited frontiers for greater performance. If we drew the, the production possibilities frontier, we're inside of it. But I think there's some understanding now about how to get out to the frontier and to do it through deeper interaction. That's a positive story and one that encourages me for the future. Well, that, that's very good. Reminds me of the Greek myth that, you know, when all sorts of horrors escaped, problems arose after Pandora opened this box, the world was afflicted. But one thing that did not escape was hope. Good point. Uh, hope did not get away. And, and even though there are real challenges, uh, and we can look at Scylla on one side, Charybdis on the other, it's important that Ulysses uh, and his team did not stay in port at a sports bar watching football matches. They sailed. They sailed and they thrived. And I, I, I have some underlying faith in the, in the goodwill and ingenuity of the people who work on this field to sail and to sail successfully. Well, that's, those are great words to end our program. I really appreciate the outstanding insights of Professor William Kavasik and former Assistant Attorney General 
James Rill, and now we know a lot more about international antitrust, its development. There's still a lot of questions. It's an ongoing process, and stay tuned. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you for listening to the Discourse Magazine podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And please feel free to share this podcast with like-minded friends and to leave us a review. We're always happy to hear from you. Finally, check out Discourse Magazine, which is available free online at www.discoursemagazine.com. Thanks again, and see you next time.